you're going through lava fields just before that and a bit after you're getting bright red dirt you're getting uh super dark dirt you're getting ponderosa pines you're getting it's really incredible uh really the different types of terrain and flora that you get to see episode 303 graham heemstra talks about bikepacking the oregon outback trail you're listening to the adventure sports podcast brought to you by 180 tech we talk with adventurers from around the globe to bring you the inspiration and motivation you need to get started in the outdoors or to keep you moving if you're already there now here's your host kurt linville Hey friends, thanks again for listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Kurt here. I have Graham Heemstra with us today, and Graham grew up in Portland, Oregon. He went to high school in Seattle, but eventually moved to New York City, Brooklyn, to be exact. He's been there for some while, and it's kind of a neat background because you think of New York City and you think of outdoor adventure, and they seem juxtaposed pretty widely there, but Graham recently completed a bikepacking trip on the Oregon Outback Trail, 364 miles in about six days, and uh, it's, it sounds fascinating. For one, I'm unfamiliar with the trail, so I want to hear all about it. And for two, um, Graham says it got pretty gnarly. I want to hear exactly what happened. So welcome to the program, Graham. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, I have to say too, Graham... Today is Eclipse Day, and so our listeners are going to look back and say, oh, really? Well, that was a few weeks ago or whatever, right? But for me, it's happening right now in Colorado, and I'm looking out my window while I'm talking to you, and I don't know what the sun looks like from Mars, never been there, but I imagine it's something like this, because the sun is about half gone right now, and the light is really silvery and gray looking. It's just kind of freaky. So when does the eclipse hit where you are? Uh, we've got about another hour and change until, uh, we get the closest we're going to get. Um, but my folks are back in Portland, Oregon, and it's already passed through there. They've been telling me of all the madness that's been going on. I think they expected a million out-of-state visitors or something. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it was smooth sailing for them, at least. They stayed home smartly. Well, I don't really understand why this eclipse is so different from others, except that it's complete in a lot of places in the United States. But... I remember an eclipse that happened a few years ago that was probably 75, 80% or something like that. We're only going to hit 85 where we are here. So really, this is very similar to me as the one that happened just a few years ago. But for some reason, America woke up to this one. Man, people are, are out looking for their eclipse glasses and lining up to try to get some. It's just kind of nuts. I've never seen so much energy around an eclipse. Yeah, you know, I think people like to get excited about things, and this is the perfect excuse right now. You know, something positive to get excited about, at least. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, in the Adventure Sports Podcast, we're all about connecting with nature. And usually that means that, you know, you're out somewhere away from from all the, the urban stuff, and you're enjoying what nature has to offer, whether that's the desert or the forest or the mountains or whatever, you know, but... This is a part of connecting with nature that we can kind of all do in mass when we realize in such a cool way that the the moon and the sun are moving with the earth and and uh it creates these sorts of of weird phenomena. I mean it's not that amazing of a thing when you think well the moon just goes in front of the sun 
And that's part of the reason why I'm like, well, what's all the hype about? But here's something that you might not know. I'm going to throw this out there just in case our listeners haven't really thought about it. The moon in the sky, from our perspective, is the same size as the sun, from our perspective. And roughly, it's because the sun is a diameter 400 times bigger than the moon, but it's 400 times farther away. So it just happens to line up that they're the same size. And here's the weird part of that. No other moon satellite on any planet in the solar system is like that. And as far as we know, there may not be another scenario like that around other stars very frequently either. It's possible that what we have on Earth, with our moon being this exact size and being this exact distance from the Earth, and the Earth and the moon being this exact distance from the sun, so that this happens this way, it might be one of those one in a trillion sort of things. That's wild. Yeah. So I kind of wonder about that, especially, and I'm not going to go on about it, but you know, in the past, you get some ancient astronomer who figures out that this is going to happen, and then he stands up in front of the people and says, I- I'm a god, you have to obey me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to black out the sun. <laughs> you know, those, those weird historical events when people would manipulate people with fear because of this. And I think all of that history couldn't have happened had the Earth and the Moon and the Sun been configured any differently than they are. So, I don't know. Just kind of a weird thing. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of people out there right now looking at the eclipse, thinking all sorts of crazy religious things as well. Yeah. Well, it is cool. And I I said this on other shows before. You know, we look at a natural phenomena, and you can explain it all away with science. Or you can go out and experience it, and you can go, whoa, that's really cool. (laughs) <laughs> and it's the whoa, really cool part, I think, that this sometimes matters because how it impacts us is our experience. And man, I Absolutely. have, I don't know, you probably have experienced this too, but I've been in nature and I've experienced some stuff that's so rare and so weird that you think, I don't think anyone would believe me if I told them, you know, and those moments, they feel magical, even though we can explain the science behind it, they still feel magical. Mm-hmm. So yeah, anyway. I mean, that's part of the, uh, you know, joy of going out is seeing something that totally blows your mind. Yeah. That you would totally have missed if you would have stuck around town. Oh, exactly. Well, right now, the eclipse is pretty cool out my window. It's getting darker and darker and darker. But that's not what the show's about. I just wanted to share that with our <laughs> listeners. Because if I stop in the middle and go, oh, man, you'll know what I'm talking about. <laughs> All the neighbors are running outside now. And oh, jeez. Half of them look well, like they're burning out their retinas. or They don't have their glasses. <laughs> <laughs> Careful. Well, I appreciate you uh, sacrificing this, you know, extremely <laughs> important moment to talk to me. It's, Aww, uh, it's an honor. I'm a part of it. I'm watching it happen. So let's go back to Graham Heemstra. So, Graham, you grew up in Portland, and then you spent some time in Seattle, and you moved to New York. And that's so right. That's a huge transition. Um Let's start with what got you interested in the outdoors and, and adventure sports. Sure, yeah. Well, you know, I was fortunate enough to grow up in a place where just being outside is pretty commonplace, you know. Um, and I had a forest in my backyard, every house I grew up in, um, deer and, you know, bear eating the bird seed and that sort of thing. Um 
even though I was just minutes from downtown Portland and Seattle. Um, so just being outside has just always been um, just a common thread in my life. Um, I specifically got super into just being outside in, in high school. I got really into snowboarding uh, and that stayed as a common thread for many years. I sort of chased that dream, traveled around, lived in New Zealand for a little while. Um, then it became pretty apparent that all my friends were way better than me and I should go to college and, <laughs> you know, wise up and actually um, better my life through that instead of just getting hurt all the time. <laughs> so, but, you know, even when I wasn't snowboarding, uh, I grew up skateboarding, I grew up riding bikes. I just always grew up being outside. Um, so it's just always been something I've, I've been interested in. Um, and then went to University of Oregon right around the time I sort of stopped snowboarding um, super heavily. One of my best friends got a job right out of college, moved to New York uh, to work in an architecture firm. And I was living in Portland at the time. You know, this was seven, eight years ago. Portland was a lot less exciting then. It was not the topic of conversation, uh, and there were not that many jobs. It was a very overeducated, underemployed uh, type of place when I was there. And, mm. um, and so I just wound up moving to New York sort of on a whim. I was like, all right, well, let's just see what the hell happens here. So grabbed a couple of skateboards and a backpack and moved out east uh, with no real plan. I had studied psychology in college and didn't really know what I was going to do with that. Uh, didn't really want to go to eight more years of school to wind up a family therapist or something. And so I wound up in New York and, you know, sort of long story short, got into working in magazines and uh, both digital and uh, physical and kind of here I am now. Wow. So New York was kind of a big adventure for you. It's like, well, let's just see what life will be like. Yeah. And, you know, growing up in the Northwest, speaking for myself, and I think a lot of people feel similarly, but I have a lot of pride in the Northwest and I never really thought of places outside of it. I always thought, you know, this is the place for me. I love it here. Uh, and then I visited New York to visit that friend um, in midway through college. And like I said, I, I knew it was a place far away. I never really thought anything about it. And I visited and I was like, oh, this place is amazing. I have to live here. It was really strange. Um, I've never experienced anything like that. So yeah, I just felt really drawn. And I've always kind of felt like I walked too fast for Portland anyways, mm, <laughs> actually okay. kind of literally. And, uh, you know, so I, I came out to New York and totally on a whim, but the, the pace of life here and the, the amount of people doing amazing things and I think really just makes a great fit. Well, maybe you can answer a couple of questions I've had for a long time. All right. We get a lot of downloads from the state of New York. Can't see where uh -huh. they come from in New York, but what we've found, of course, is we get more downloads from population centers, and New York certainly has that. But uh -huh. here's the thing that's amazing. You know, upstate New York, very natural, very beautiful. Um, people are used to hearing about that, but most of the population is going to be in the city, uh -huh. and New York City is not super close to most kind of rugged, outback adventure sports. So True. there's a stereotype, and you can you can bash that if you need to. But the question <laughs> I have is, you know, we also sell a lot of our 180 stoves to people in New York City. 
And I'm like, okay, uh-huh. where are these people going? What are they doing? How are they getting from the city to where they do their, their adventures? Totally. Well, you know, I think that one thing that people forget is that New York is more or less a beach town. I mean, the ocean is a 40 minute subway ride away. Right. Yeah. It's kind of, kind of gross, <laughs> <laughs> but if you go farther out on Long Island, it gets really beautiful. And you know, about, you can take a train, there's public transportation that goes all the way up the Hudson Valley and you can jump on a train at Penn station in the middle of Manhattan. And an hour and a half later, you know, be in a pretty beautiful, pretty remote area um, where you can hike and camp um, without even really having a car. So, you know, the surf scene in recent years has really blown up in New York, and which is crazy. People have a hard time wrapping their heads around that. But if you live here, um, you know, you start to see it. And you see, you can take the subway to the beach. You see people on the subway with surfboards. It's really wild. Oh, that's great. Um, and, you know, one thing I always say, and I think a lot of people feel similarly, but for me, the only way for me to survive living in New York is to leave every opportunity I get. And so I'm fortunate enough, my folks are still in Portland. I have a lot of uh, other family in Seattle. And so I get back to the Northwest, you know, often, a handful of times a year. And I think leaving the city really makes you appreciate how great the city actually is. Um, and that could be even just like going to the beach for a day. It doesn't have to be extreme trips. But um, yeah, I think there's a lot of people who live in New York that really love like going hard and working all the time and really enjoying the city for all it has. But then they need that exact opposite and they do go outside. Um, so maybe that helps clear things up. Yeah, well, it's it's very, very cool, and it's a beautiful trend. It's exactly what the Adventure Sports Podcast is trying to promote. It's that people do take the time to go connect with nature, even if they live in the heart of a huge metropolitan area like New York. And, Uh you know, the reality is we interview a lot of people from London or other cities around the world who are doing the same sort of a thing. You know, Uh they're they're jumping on a subway and, and bugging out of town and doing the weekend warrior bit. I love it. I think that it's a healthy thing for people, and I also love it because it it illustrates that even if you live in one of the biggest cities in the United States, one of the biggest cities on the planet, you can still go connect with nature regularly. Well, that's what we ought to be doing. I think that that matters, and I think it's beautiful. Absolutely. 100% agree. Yeah, that's cool. Well, thanks for clearing that up. So, <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> Graham, let's talk about the Oregon Outback Trail. I mean, I don't know much about this trail at all. So, fill us in. Where does it go and what's it like? Well, to tell you the truth, I didn't know a lot about it either until I went. Um, I tend to have this do this thing where people invite me on crazy trips and I sort of just say yes. And then I don't really do my homework. Uh, I get too preoccupied with other work or whatever, whatever excuse. Um, and then I just wind up totally out in some wild place, potentially over my head. Uh, and then it turns into an adventure and I get good stories out of it. So <laughs> there generally you go. it generally works out. <laughs> um, but this trip in particular, so the Oregon Outback Trail It's 364 miles, uh, extends basically the entire length of Oregon uh, from Klamath Falls, Oregon, which is roughly on the California border, right near it, all the way up to the Columbia River, which divides Oregon and Washington. Uh, And it goes through central Oregon, which is 
a lot of different types of terrain, but a lot of it is desert-like. Um, you know, people think of Oregon and they think of big lush trees, but the whole Northwest really is divided into the Western third where the Cascades are, uh, that's lush. And then the Eastern third of Oregon and Washington gets super high desert, um, you know, hot in the summer, cold in the winter. And so we were going through a portion actually called the Oregon Outback and it's super deserted. There's nothing out there. Tiny little ghost towns, towns of a hundred people, uh, rattlesnakes and all sorts of, you know, wildlife. Um, and so it makes for quite the incredible bike packing trip because you're largely unsupported. Um, and it just creates, you get to see parts of the state that, you know, most people don't ever get to see. Yeah. So growing up in, you know, Western Oregon, I got to see a lot of the beautiful state there, but Eastern Oregon and Central Oregon uh, were really new to me. And so that was a big draw was to go out and see a portion of the state, uh, you know, my home state that I had never explored before. Wow. So that's pretty cool. And that it's also highlights something that happened to me. Um, I grew up in Oklahoma, Northeastern Oklahoma, green country. It's called that to, to try to differentiate it from, you know, the, the red plains and, and more dry open area of, of Western Oklahoma, but green country is heavily forested in the foothills of the Ozarks. But I grew up there and it was just normal. Didn't think much about it. Moved to Colorado for about a year, moved back to Oklahoma to finish school. And the reason I bring it up is because when I left Colorado, I, I just totally fall in love with Colorado. And so when I went back to Oklahoma, I was like, oh, man, I am going to miss this so much. I mean, it was tough because I, I was craving more of what Colorado had to offer. But I said, OK, well, I know that northeastern Oklahoma has some cool stuff, too. I probably never have looked. I'm going to make mm -hmm. sure that I take the time to open my eyes and experience it. And I had more fun discovering things where I had grown up than I ever thought or dreamed that I would so many amazing natural wonders and great places to go out and do adventure sports and fun things. And a lot of stuff is there that's not in Colorado. But the reason I bring it up is you kind of had that similar experience. So you're going back to Oregon, but you're seeing parts of Oregon you've never seen before and experiencing something brand new. Absolutely. You know, I mean, I think that a lot of people get this feeling that they need to go on far-flung adventures um or you know travel to iceland to see something crazy right um and yeah that is a great way to experience something new but there's so much i mean america is an incredible incredibly diverse place um you know geographically and whatnot and there's just so much good stuff that we all tend to overlook um so I'm, i've been trying to spend more time just kind of exploring uh stuff right in my own backyard. Oh yeah. Well, I'm glad that you brought that up because it's a good testimony. Adventures everywhere, nature's everywhere. You just have to open your eyes a little bit and realize what you take for granted because you've always been there, you know? That might mm -hmm. be something really amazing if you take a minute to kind of explore it and experience it in a new way. So, very very cool. Will you do us, us the favor of kind of describing the topography and the and the vegetation and stuff that you're going to experience on the Oregon Outback Trail, just kind of from start to finish. You did six days of this. So how did the, the, the landscape change? Well, you know, it was almost changing every 
30 or 40 miles or so. Um, and that sounds crazy, but <laughs> it's actually kind of true. Um, you start out in sort of farmland, uh, and day one can be kind of frustrating because you're actually going through, you're on uh, a rails to trails, you know, so they, it's old, uh, locomotive track that they've turned to bike trails. Right but on. it's by, but it, yeah, it's amazing. But it bisects uh, all these farmlands, so you're constantly stopping and opening gates and going <laughs> over uh, cattle guards and things like that. Uh, which on day one you think is the most annoying thing, and then by day two you would kill to have the gates back if you just could stop riding hills. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, day one, you know, you're going through cow pastures and stuff, and you know, flicking up cow crap on each other and it's uh it's it's fun <laughs> and then you start gaining you know you get farther up in the state and you wind up going into some national forests um and then then you basically get into flat desert uh you go by this incredible natural phenomenon called fort rock which is exactly what it sounds like it's like a giant crater like uh rock formation that jets up straight out of the ground um and that's pretty wild and then right after that, you basically run into the uh, Ochakal Mountains, uh, which is a pretty awesome and hilly area of old growth. You know, you're going through lava fields just before that and a bit after. You're getting bright red dirt. You're getting uh, super dark dirt. You're getting ponderosa pines. You're getting – it's really incredible, uh, really, the different types of terrain and and flora that you get to see. I, I was sort of saying I wish I had just periodically stopped and taken photos of my feet or something on the ground because you get you go through so many different types of soil and different colors. Uh, it would have made for a really cool photo essay. So maybe next time. Oh, yeah. That's fun. By now, you certainly know who Bent Gate is. That's for a great reason. Bentgate Mountaineering has been sponsoring the Adventure Sports Podcast almost from the beginning, and we really appreciate that. They've made it possible for all the great shows to continue coming your way. We want to say thanks by reminding you to go to them for your backcountry gear. If you live in Colorado, then just stop by their store in Golden. If not, go to bentgate.com. They have what you need from the latest ultralight gear to the tried and true classics for climbing, hiking, and camping like Arcteryx, Hilleberg, Nemo, Western Mountaineering, and many more. Need advice? They have you covered there, too. Their staff are passionate adventurers who can offer help from their own experiences. Bentgate also hosts lots of events and speakers. Check out their website to see the schedule and to see all of their products. Help take care of the Adventure Sports Podcast by getting your gear from Bentgate Mountaineering. So since it's a railroad grade, that means it can't be super steep, but you said it was pretty hilly. Well, thanks for catching that. Uh, the rails to trails ends pretty much at the end of day one. So we ah, did it in six, okay. six days. Right. So day one was like, oh, this can't be that bad. And then you basically are 
traversing through the state, through various different mountain ranges and things. Um, and I mean, in total, there's almost 15,000 feet of ascents, uh, over, you know, 364 miles. So it gets pretty serious. There's multiple days where we're climbing almost, you know, 4,500 feet over about 70 miles a day. Mm, okay. Uh, so, and you know, it's funny, there was a lot of takeaways and one of them was, it's possible to spend all day climbing and wind up with a net elevation loss. Like wow. all we did on day two was these rolling hills where it was a real gradual ascent and then a steep descent and then a real gradual ascent, steep descent. And so that really kind of, for me, screwed with my head because it's like all you're doing is climbing at a real slow s- speed and then you get these quick moments to recover that you don't actually recover from <laughs> yeah, <you laughs> so, climb for an hour and go downhill for three minutes and then you climb exactly. for an hour and <laughs> i get it yeah it yeah. was pretty unrelenting um and you know i i don't actually i mean i didn't train for this and that was a pretty serious mistake um i was with three other friends who you know are pretty big badasses and they were definitely in better shape than I was. I was lagging the whole time, um, which, you know, just adds to the storyline. But oh, yeah. most most of my days, you know, I, I, I commute by bike, but, you know, I could ride 15 miles in a day just running errands. But that's much different than being out on uh, gravel. So most of this, the Oregon Outback Trail, is about 75, 80% unpaved. So it's gravel, it's dirt, it's you know, all you can imagine there. So yeah, to say I was underprepared would be an understatement. (laughs) Cool. Cool. Well, you know what? I'm going to pause in the conversation for about 10 seconds here and give an eclipse update. So right now I'm watching people outside trying to make shadows and stuff of the eclipse and you get this little crescent sun mark. Everything else is, you know, just, it's kind of like the, the moon, except as a, inversion somehow i don't know it's wild but we're at probably the peak of the eclipse here so we're like 85 percent. and what it looks like is you know if someone has a really bad window tinting job on their car and it's just way too dark (laughs) (laughs) you you step outside and you blink your eyes you want to clean your glasses because it looks just like that like the whole world has been tinted too much but pretty fun pretty fun very cool anyway just wanted to give you that update so um, it sounds like the Oregon Outback Trail is pretty cool. Um, you did bike packing on it. Did you see a lot of hikers on it? No, so it's mostly uh, a bike packing trail. Um, and it's it's really not a designated trail in the sense that there's a, there's markers and things. Um, it's more just a network of roads. And so we had um, you know GPS tracking to try and figure out because there are portions where you go through little towns and you're going on paved roads, uh, you know, little County roads and such. Um, so that's one thing is you really always have to be on your toes. Um, okay. Paying attention. So yeah, it was started a handful of years ago. Uh, I think they did an organized ride for maybe two years. Um, and hundreds of people did it. I think a guy did it in like a day and a half or maybe even just gone straight through, um, which wow. was pretty wild. And uh, 
Yeah, so it's more just a network of roads and trails that all sort of line up. Um, and we did see some other bike packers on it. Uh, there was a really cool older couple, and they're about 50s. Uh, and they're really badass. They made all their own bike packing, um, like the frame bags and things. And, um, but we actually ran into them about on day four in Prineville, which is a cool little town that has a great little bike shop, um, called Good Bike Co. And they've got, uh, coffee and beers and they're sort of a, uh, a hub for, bike packing in that area we ran into the older couple there and they were like it's just too hard and i think they might have been thrown in the towel which was mm. a bit of a shame but you know one thing that i forgot to mention which is crazy because it basically set the tone for this entire trip is that we did it in early june which you would assume that you're going to get great weather you know forecast the week before we went and the week after was highs in the 80s lows and you know 50s uh the day we started it was about 30 something degrees in the Ooh, morning ouch. and a crazy storm had come in and basically for the entire six days we just got rained on hailed on uh, we even saw snow on day two for a half a second uh, which was crazy and so yeah the terrain was tough but i think that the weather and the wind and the driving rain and stuff that really, um, really made it significantly more difficult. And it was totally out of season, unexpected. Well, and that's the worst is when you're kind of hovering around freezing and you get rain and snow mixed and that super cold wind and, and everything's wet because it's not cold enough to dry out. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's, oh, yeah, absolutely. That's the very worst temperature to do anything in outside without the right gear. I mean, it's tough. Yeah, you know, I mean, the term type 2 fun got tossed around quite a bit. <laughs> wow. Well, this is cool. I'm learning a ton about the Oregon Outback Trail. So what you're saying is it's primarily a bike route. And Correct. it's kind of similar to, like, people talk about the Great Divide Trail. I'm not talking about the Continental Divide Trail. I'm talking about the bike route, the Great Divide Trail, right? Mm-hmm. And it's more of a route than it is necessarily just one trail with signage or something like the Appalachian Trail might be. But what a cool thing. So uh, how many people are using this trail for bikepacking? Is it pretty popular or do you think that it's a little underused? You know, I don't know the exact numbers. Um, I would assume that it's probably, you know, a couple hundred people a year are are doing the whole thing. I think that people probably do sections as well. Um, what's great is that the way that we did it, and I think the way a lot of people do it, is that you can take an Amtrak from Portland down to Klamath Falls and then just start there. And then you wind up in the Dalles out near uh, Hood River, which is about you know an hour and a half or so from Portland. So if you get a shuttle back from there, then it's a pretty seamless round trip. Um, and like I said, that bike shop in Prineville is really sort of set themselves up as a hub for bikepacking. So they've done some organized, um, promotion of the bike, Oregon out bike trail and things. Um, you know, I mean, I think bikepacking in general is getting more popular. I had never really done it. I had done little sort of overnights here and there. Um, but this was absolutely my first attempt at something more serious. And, uh, 
you know, it was, it was a blast. It was really cool. I mean, it was basically the combination of all the best things about backpacking, but you get to cover more ground and see more things and meet cooler people. Yeah, that's fun. We've had several bike packers on the show and also, you know, roadies that are using panniers and stuff to do distances mm-hmm. and travel the world, which is awesome. Um, I kind of like the idea of bike packing and how it's developing the way that people get gear onto the bike. So it's more aerodynamic and so it can stand up to the abuse that you get mountain biking, essentially on rough trails mm-hmm. instead of using panniers that don't seem to hold up to that kind of abuse. But what was your kit like? Were you set up like a true mountain bike, bike packing setup or was it more of a pannier setup? Uh, it was more, you know, it was definite bike packing setup. Uh, we had the folks at Ortlieb, uh, you know, who is best known for making panniers. They recently made a whole set of bike packing frame bags and, um, sea post bag and things like that. Uh, and so they hooked us up and those were pretty great. Um, I did bust a zipper halfway through, but luckily the most of the worst weather was already past us. Mm. But, it's pretty incredible how much you can put on a bike and still ride it pretty uninhibited. Um, you know, I think it really opens up a lot of, a lot of doors there for different types of traveling and exploring. I think most people are familiar with the kit that you see with panniers because people have seen travelers with panniers for, for years, but since bikepacking is newer, it's been around, but it's newer. Um, I haven't seen that many in person. I've seen several, but not that many, you know, really uh-huh. in comparison. So describe where the gear is going and how the bag's set up a little bit, just so people get a feel for what we're talking about. It really is different. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we had a large sort of Tootsie Roll style bag that goes on the handlebars. You know, we have drop bars like a road bike. Uh, and so... Right in front there, that's where we sort of put our sleeping bag and maybe a um, cooking pot or something, nest those together in there. Uh, and then on top of that, a tiny little accessory bag that we just jammed full of, you know, honey stinger bars and cliff bars and all that stuff, which I never want to eat again because I ate way too many of them. <laughs> um, that's one advice. Bring more real food. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and then a large frame bag that took up, you know, the entire space pretty much in the triangle between in your frame there between the down tube and all that. Uh, and then a large, probably the biggest bag actually connects sticking off almost like a rooster tail, um, from your seat post underneath your seat and almost acting like a large fender. Uh, and that's where we stuck tents and some of the bigger items, um, and then and it, that was basically it. One of the other friends I was with was a photographer, and so he had some paneers as well. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really impressive how much that you can really jam in there. But it also, you know, tests your limits on uh, how much you can refine your packing list. Yeah, it's, it's a lot less gear space than a good-sized backpack would offer. But it's enough gear space that people can do it. And that's what's cool. You kind of have to get into the the minimalist, ultralight kind of a, an approach, I think, to make it really work. Absolutely. And, you know, the nice thing about this whole setup, uh, the, the trail, rather, is that 
you're almost daily running through these tiny little towns with a gas station at least, you know, or a little mercantile or something like that. Uh, so we didn't have to carry much food, which was huge. Uh, and we actually ate pretty well. There's this amazing diner uh, restaurant in the middle of nowhere, absolute nowhere, on day two called the Cowboy Dinner Tree. And you have to call ahead. Um, I would not recommend it for vegetarians. The only thing, <laughs> the only thing they serve is either a 30 ounce steak or a whole roasted chicken. Wow. And yeah, it's pretty incredible. And so that was definitely day two was the hardest day, you know, really bad weather, tons of climbing. But at the end of the day, we just knew that we were going to wrap up with an incredible steak dinner uh, at this really bizarre old cowboy restaurant. Uh, and so that was really neat. Hey, that's fun. So was this your first bike packing trip? Yeah. You know, I had done a couple smaller ones, like a, an overnight or something really just more like adventure biking day stuff. But this was absolutely my first attempt at more than one night, uh, bike packing. So yes, actually so, all for, for all four of us, it was really for all intents and purposes, the first bike packing trip. Uh, wow. So we really, we really, uh, started full on. I've talked to several bike packers who describe what it was like to get into the sport and it's kind of a painful point of entry, but then they fall in love with it. And some of them, you know, have traveled the planet that way because they love it so much. But what was your take on it? You know, first trip, first time out, did you uh, think it was a great thing to do or, or be more, more reserved, I guess? No, absolutely. I loved it. Um, I have done quite a bit of long motorcycle camping trips. Um, I went from New York to LA a handful of years ago and I'm sort of around uh, Lake Michigan and things like that. And so I had similar experience with just like packing tons of junk onto a bike and going. Uh, obviously, this is significantly different. But, you know, after doing my first bike packing trip, I definitely loved it and I would absolutely suggest to anyone that can get their hands on the gear um, to do it. Yeah, I would love to do more of it. It's cool. So I love mountain biking and we spend a lot of time doing that. And I've been wanting to block out some time and get the right gear and uh, see what kind of distance we can cover just in the Colorado Rockies without getting on a road. So uh -huh. I'd love to give that a try and we'll do it one of these days, but it's one of those, you know, those dream trips. We're going to make it happen. Yeah. Well, you know, I guess my advice for that would just to be, you know, say yes to any invite you might get. Um, this whole thing came about because a friend of mine out in Bend, Oregon, uh, who works at Hydro Flask, I had been emailing with him and he said, hey, you know, me and a couple of pals are doing this trip. Do you want to come? And I had an opening in my calendar and I just said yes. So thank goodness they put most of it together and I jumped along and, uh, you know, had I actually done my research, maybe I would have been more hesitant, but you know, on this opportunity, the, uh, blind confidence there definitely worked out and I'm happy that I did it. So you heard it from Graham Heemstra, just say yes when it comes to this. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> That's cool. Well, Hey, you said that day two, especially got gnarly and the weather and all that. Will you walk us through it? Just take us there. Tell us the story so we can hear the details. Yeah, sure. So day two, you know, we woke up, we ended up sort of just 
dipping into the woods and camping at no on you know on a national forest there just in not a campground uh but we woke up to a little bit of rain and about 7 a.m you know packed up all of our stuff had a soggy morning um and then we hit the road and uh started out going through a volcanic area you know it's super beautiful it's fun weather was all right and then right around noon or so once we'd gotten maybe 20 miles 30 miles under our belt it just started raining and if you ever spent any time in the northwest you know that the rains are not really uh they don't really blow through once they're there they're there to stay so we got all of our rain gear on and you know just kept pedaling and it just didn't ever stop uh Ugh. The hills, like I mentioned earlier, the hills were just rolling and they were, you know, luckily a good portion of it was on pavement, but the temperatures were low, I'd say upper 30s, uh, low 40s, and there was wind and there was, you know, sleet and, and it was cold. And the thing was, is we had, we had that reservation at the Cowboy Dinner Tree and we didn't want to miss it. And so that was the biggest driving force is, you know, we had to hit these mile markers. And so we just kept pushing. Uh, we got to a point where I can definitively say I've never been more mentally and physically exhausted. Mm. Um, you know, I've done a lot of adventuring in my day and this was gnarly. I, in the moment I was trying to think of to sort of bring, you know, get my spirits higher. I was trying to think of, oh, I guarantee I've been in this, you know, uh, worse situation. And I couldn't think of it then. And I honestly don't think I can think of a uh, tougher one now. Um, <laughs> and there was a moment where, you know, I sort of found myself alone because I had fallen back and a buddy, one of the folk, um, Bo had turned around and ridden back to me and I, you know, a lot of the uh, trail, you don't really need to wear a helmet um, because you're going at low speeds. You're you're kind of just going on flat ground like, you know, you're not really going to tip over. I got to a point where I needed to put my helmet on because I was so unsteady and so just like totally bonked, just so out of energy that I was concerned that I was just going to tip over at any moment. Um, Yikes. And it was pouring rain and I really had, there was a moment where I had to just get off my bike and just lay down. Uh, and I just laid down in the middle of this trail in the middle of nowhere, Oregon in the pouring rain and just like jammed a cliff bar down my throat, trying to get some energy as the rain just poured down on my face. And, and that was actually a theme that started as I realized that five minutes of rest laying down is better than 15 minutes of standing rest. Oh yeah. Yeah, and, no doubt. And I just, you know, luckily that, that few moments of laying there in the rain sort of gave a little bit of clarity and we only had about 15 miles, um, which doesn't sound like a ton, but when you're really only pedaling eight miles an hour, 15 miles is still quite a ways to go. Right. Um, but you know, I was, the crew that I was with was super positive and everyone was feeling the same stuff. And, uh, so we all sort of, you know, cheered each other on and but yeah there was a moment even even just after that there was a serious descent uh and my hands were so cold and so wet that i couldn't shift i was actually like 
slapping my hand on the bar end shifters to get them to go up and down because oh, I couldn't. And I was going down this descent that was pretty windy. Um, and it was actually probably the most beautiful portion of the trip. And I was so bummed that I couldn't get my camera out, but I couldn't even move my hands to the point of grabbing the brakes. Um, and that really scared me. I had to stop and put my hands in my pants to uh, warm myself up there for about yeah. 10 minutes. Um, yeah, but that was pretty spooky. Never run out of camp stove fuel again. The 180 stove is a natural fuel stove that eliminates the need to carry heavy, bulky fuel canisters. With a generous 6-inch by 7-inch cooking surface, it folds away into a clean, compact, self-forming case that is small enough to fit inside your pocket. At only 10.4 ounces, the additional weight and space savings allows for other important items in your pack. Get more information at 180tac.com and look for it in retailers near you as well as online. Well, that sounds wild. I, I want to make one point. You know, you guys were a team. You guys were looking out for each other. And like you said, that five minutes made a huge difference to being able to lay down. But I wanted to point out in conditions like that, where you're just prime conditions for hypothermia, if you're alone, don't lay down unless you're in a warm spot. <laughs> I'm just telling everybody because you may not get back up again because that's kind of one of the, the steps of hypothermia is you uh, you get to the point where you just your your mind kind of quits reasoning clearly and you just want to stop. And so, but it worked for you and you guys had a team there. You're looking out for each other. So I totally agree with everything you did, but I just wanted to point that out to the listeners. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's super important. Um, yeah, I, you know, and I, I admit that I should have been better prepared for this trip. Um, and there was moments like that on that specifically on day two where I was definitely over my head. Um, but I was just super thankful, luckily to be with, uh, three pals that were, you know, pretty serious athletes and, and, you know, experienced outdoorsmen. So, you know, we kept each other going there and, uh, and that actually leads to, you know, one of the biggest takeaways was like, don't be embarrassed or don't be, think twice about making a smart decision to save the trip. Um, cause after we got done with the cowboy dinner tree, we were all still so exhausted that, um, there was a hotel nearby and we went and stayed there for the night and dried out and dried our tents and, you know, we're able to get a decent night's sleep. And had we gone and just pitched tents and crawled in there wet, you know, that could have been really scary and dangerous. And so, you know, our, you know, our ego said, well, we set out to camp and we want to camp, but we had to make that smart decision to just ditch it and stay in a hotel for a night. Um, so that was a big takeaway is, you know. Yeah. And the funny part is, had it been 10 degrees colder, you guys would have been warmer, <laughs> but that's just the way it is. Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. That's, but, uh, that's wild, man. Mother nature sometimes changes our plans and that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you just gotta be, gotta be fluid. And I think that's one of the most fun things about doing these big trips like this is that you need to just sort of surrender to, uh, 
reacting to the actual situation. And, you know, if you set out to hit 70 miles a day, but you only hit 55, that's fine. You know, just take it as it goes and don't unnecessarily push yourself into a situation where you might end up getting even more sketchy. You know, I, I have a theory that had the weather been perfect all the way through, you would look back on the trip someday, 10 years from now and say, yeah, well, we biked a long way back then somewhere. Right. <laughs> and, but yeah, now you, you've got the full story. It's like, oh man, remember that day? Yeah. I mean, it was, there's, there's almost too many stories to tell from this trip. I'm sure all my friends and family are sick of hearing about it. <laughs> I only had about like three days to just hit them with all the stories and now I'm, no one wants to hear about it anymore. So I appreciate you taking the time. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Well, tell us uh, how it, or what it was like when you were having a really good day on this trip, uh, a highlight that just seemed really, really cool. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I definitely have to say that the whole trip, we thought it would get easier, and it didn't. Um, it never got as hard as day two, but it never really got easy. But I think that comes a point where you're fine with the way that, you know, it's tough, but that's sort of part of the fun. And for us day, I think it was day three. Um, no, excuse me. It's day five. We had the toughest day as far as ascent, uh, total elevation gain. It was almost 5,000 feet, but it was sunny and it was finally warm. It was the first time I wore a short sleeve shirt the whole time. The only time. And uh, we were in this incredible area, uh, quite getting up there north towards this area called Antelope. And we had finally reached the top of this extreme climb, you know, a two hour climb or whatever. And we're on the middle of nowhere. And all of a sudden, a pickup truck comes out, you know sort of rattling up behind us. And this old man rolls down his window and he turns to us. He's got his dog sitting on the bench seat next to him. And he turns to us and says, she thinks you're crazy and I think you're idiots. <laughs> and then just, and then just erupts laughing and just drives off. <laughs> We're like, what the heck was that? Like this crazy old man. And so we get a laugh out of that and we keep going for a bit. And, and we're sort of starting to realize we're running out of water. And so one of the guys on the crew is this guy named Bo who grew up, um, out in Kansas and, uh, a real great people person. I mean, he could talk to anyone. He could sweet talk anybody. So we go, all right, Bo, you got to go and knock on a door. So we've, you know, we were in this pretty remote area, but there were some houses. So he goes, knocks on a door and asks this super friendly older woman, um, if we can fill up her water bottles with her hose. She says, yes, we go up there and she says, well, you know, my husband's usually here. He'd usually be the one handling this. Um, but he's out patrolling the hills. He thinks he's the sheriff around here. <laughs> and right and right on cue, the old man that had talked to us a few minutes earlier rolls up in his pickup truck. And he jumps out and he's giving us all this fake attitude, joking around. And uh he's like, Looks like you guys could use a beer and goes in and gets some beers for us and uh we end up talking to this man. He's a eighth generation or Oregonian. His wow. great great grandfather had homesteaded the land that they were on. 
they had some 4,000 acres where they drive cattle and stuff. And I mean, these are, you know, some pretty bad SOBs and, uh, tough, tough family, but so friendly. And we ended up hanging out with them for an hour. And, and at that moment, we knew we weren't going to reach our mileage. But we were like, I mean, this is such a cool experience. You know, screw the mileage. We want to just hang out and have a beer with this older couple and watch them bicker at each other and, you know, crack, <laughs> crack jokes. And, and um, you know, I think that that was a really cool thing is for me, the biggest takeaways from this trip were, yeah, it was tough and it was really cool. But we met so many incredible people. Um, and so many people were so kind to us that we had to sort of remember that, you know, so much of our society and the way that a lot of people are raised leads you to believe that strangers are bad. Right. And we experienced so much kindness and so much generosity from just totally random people that were, had knew nothing about us, but they thought that what we were doing was interesting and curious or they were just being nice, you know, and that was the coolest part of any day and specifically the coolest coolest part of the trip for me was just meeting this older couple and and hearing about their lives and what it's like to live in the middle of nowhere, Oregon. Um, So maybe that doesn't answer your question, but that was a pretty good day. Oh no, that's a great answer. I, I have to chuckle because I've heard it several times where people say, we thought this was going to be about the trip. It ended up being about the people. Mm-hmm. You know, people start start out thinking, I'm going to bike this far in this period of time, and I'm going to see all this stuff, and it's going to be cool, and it's all about the biking. And the reality is, that, no, it's about the people you meet along the way. And uh, that's it kind of becomes the highlight. So I'm glad you shared that. I think it's awesome, and I think it's real. So don't you wish you would have stayed home and not gone? <laughs> yeah, you know, I would have had uh, probably gained some weight instead of losing some but (laughs) (laughs) no i i'm so happy that you know i put myself through all that and and went it was a blast well just say yes graham says just say yes (laughs) to to doing stuff like this i love it well dude you mentioned earlier uh your digital publication just you just kind of mentioned it in passing but you've got a resource that our listeners should check out so tell us about that yeah so uh, a handful of years ago, um, after I moved to New York, you know, I've been working in different magazines, working in um, writing about design and writing about fashion and writing about outdoors and doing all these things. And I kind of thought, well, you know, I think there's a lot of people like myself that live in cities and that care about good design, but also love to go outside and go on adventures and things. So I started uh, this digital publication called The Field. And it's uh, fieldmag.com. And we publish a modest amount of content, all original content, um, photo essays, gear, reviews, and, and features, trip recaps, um, designers, designer Q&As, and things like that. And really the idea is to just try and create a resource and a, a place for people to, you know, as a place to see the outdoors in a more accessible light um, and to just, you know, see some beautiful photography, learn about some cool new gear. So yeah, you know, our approach with the field is there are a lot of really core endemic outdoor publications and they're great. But if you're new to the outdoors, you didn't grow up in them, or maybe you don't really care how much, you know, that carabiner weighs or whatever, 
we want to be a resource for people that are looking for something that's a little less intense, a little less intimidating, um, but still shows like the beautiful photography and the beautiful outdoors and really cool gear that, um, you know, you can get out and go on adventures yourself with. So a great way to start out, it sounds like, getting into the adventure space. Yeah, you know, I think that I don't entirely know uh, the skill level and the experience level of our audience. You know, I wish I did. Um, But I would assume that most of our, you know, a lot of our readers are sort of weekend warriors, you know. And as I now live in New York, I've sort of become that as well. And I think that expression sort of used to have or maybe still does have a negative connotation. But the reality is, is, you know, I would love to spend every day outside, but I can't because... (laughs) I'm a real adult and I have to pay rent. Right. And so, you know, we just want to encourage people to get outside and, you know, try something that they haven't done or, you know, maybe learn more about something they already know. Um, Yeah. So, you know, we're not necessarily targeting beginners or experts, but we're just trying to be a resource for folks that are interested in good design and the great outdoors. Right on. So that's fieldmag.com, right? Correct. And if people want to get more information about your bike trip that you did on the Oregon Outback Trail, did you guys blog any of that? Yeah, we did. A, I shot a photo essay. Um, it's all shot on 35 millimeter film that turned out pretty well uh, that I'm happy with. And then we also did sort of a longer uh, what I learned feature. And that breaks it down day by day, talks about a lot of the things that I went over. Um, and so, yeah, if you go to fieldmag.com and click on photo essays or click on features uh, in the menu there, then, you know, you'll see what I'm talking about and hopefully be entertained. Right on. So if you are interested in learning more about the trail or maybe doing the trail yourself sometime, then make your way over to Graham's fieldmag.com. And you can be able to see what his trip was like. That's very cool. Thanks for sharing it, man. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for inviting me on to to talk about it. Yeah, you bet. So fieldmag.com. I I got to look over it a little bit. It's it's good quality stuff. And I didn't get to explore as in-depth as I will. That's going to happen. But thanks a lot, Graham, for putting the time and the energy into it so that other people can have a, a great resource like that. Absolutely. It's a lot of fun. So, you know. It's not too, uh, not too big of an ask. (laughs) (laughs) Right on. Well, Graham, thanks also for your time today and for educating me on the Oregon Outback Trail. I didn't know anything about it, and now I do, and it sounds like a fantastic bikepacking resource for people. And we appreciate the time you took to share it with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. And you know, I hope I didn't make it sound too intimidating or too scary. Uh, You know, it's definitely an amazing way to see Oregon and. Just hope you have better luck with the weather than I did. (laughs) I'm sure a lot of people will. Well, and for all the listeners out there, here's another way that you can get out there and have some fun. The Oregon Outback Trail and check out Graham's site, fieldmag.com. Thanks for listening today. And as always, do get out there and have some fun. Coming up on Monday's show, Scott Pierce and his wife, Joe Roxy, moved to the United States from Australia and decided to cycle across the country to get acquainted with their new home. You don't want to miss that one. Until then, get out and have some fun.